0: One of the most striking things of the coronavirus crisis is how global its effects are. The entire world is going through it almost simultaneously. Every continent, every region, and every individual is affected by it in some way. This means that the world's thinkers, in their respective modes of inquiry, are also forced to grapple with the virus's intersections with their fields. The American Academy in Berlin, as an institution that hosts some of the leading figures in some of these disciplines, is proud to be a site where such thinking takes place. Our Beyond the Lecture team sat down with six fellows in the current class, along with a few of their partners, to share their thoughts on the unfolding crisis. But before we begin, we should quickly note that this episode was recorded in the midst of Germany's lockdown restrictions, which means we couldn't conduct the interviews ourselves. Fortunately, one of our spring 2020 fellows, anthropologist Dominic Boyer of Rice University, was kind enough to make the recordings on our behalf. This arrangement adhered with Germany's social distancing rules, since Boyer and his fellow fellows formed a household during their stay at the Academy. The rest of the show will be narrated by the American Academy's podcast producer, Tony Andrews.
1: Thanks, RJ. We start out with composer Carolyn Chen, who reflects on having been warned about the pandemic by her parents, both of whom are Taiwanese immigrants to America.
2: So when this all first started, I remember the first time I called my brother. He said, he kind of called it, he said, the most annoying part of all this is that mom and dad were right. How so? Um, Long before anybody here or in the U.S., like, cared about this or registered this or was calling it a pandemic, I was getting almost daily updates from my parents about the status of COVID-19. Wow.
3: So they had been paying attention to what was happening in Asia?
2: Yeah, because they watched Chinese language television. So they were panicking already in January. Like they were seeing footage of all these hospitals being overwhelmed, of like funeral workers being overwhelmed. Um... And just, like, all of the suffering and all of the chaos, they knew. And they were trying to tell us, like, in, in our regular updates on the family chat. Um, and it just didn't register.
1: Once the realities hit in, Chen says that she's been impressed by Germany's initiatives aimed at providing financial assistance to artists.
2: At the moment, because I'm in, I mean, I'm usually sheltered in my very privileged life, but this is kind of... The zenith, the zenith of shelter, um, being at the academy um, in a country that has actually prepared, you know, that was getting ready with tests and kind of thinking about how to deal with a situation like this long before the U.S. did. So, um, yeah, I just heard that all the freelancers are getting $5,000 in Berlin and they've like maybe 300,000 people have, are, are a part of this already. And so, I mean, just the scale of like being able to help people out in that way, of, of like kind of really valuing the lives of people at different economic strata, it's, it's sort of very surreal to kind of be here and, and to realize that it's possible to take care of people. It's, it's like possible for a government to value the lives of people who are not only the richest.
1: Lillian Weisberg, a cultural historian and theorist at the University of Pennsylvania, noticed how our notions of time have been impacted by the pandemic.
4: Time is different, but... Um... You know, thinking of a common time is something that was invented in the late 19th century and uh, was invented because of the railroad. They had to uh, unify their time schedules. And we are in a post-railroad time, so time will not be unified again. And we had all kinds of discussion on a very trivial point about time already earlier, dropping the summer time and so on and so forth. Pandemic ad- ademani- time is yet something else for many of us, um, that it gets loose on the edges, um, that it's not just that we redefine it, but definitions blur. Um, that cannot last forever, otherwise we cannot enter the economy fully. Um, So maybe this is a glimpse into the 18th and early 19th century for us.
1: Weisberg goes on to note that the concept of social distancing is not as new as we may think.
4: The irony of this is that the book that I'm writing right now is a book on postcards and a book that deals with the question of the relationship of text and image Um, and object and message um, in the late 19th and early 20th century as it relates to this new invention of the postcard and what it does for modernity. But one fact behind that is, of course, a form of social distancing. You send a postcard to somebody who is not here, in the way that we are now using email or any other electronic mails to relate to people who are not with us right now. Um, So the fact of how to call upon the presence of somebody who is distant um, became much more of an issue for me in this particular project than it was before.
1: Dartmouth University German Studies professor Veronica Furschner found herself wondering about a more visceral dimension to the pandemic. She asked herself, what might the lack of touch necessitated by social distancing mean for us as a society? There's a
5: lot of anthropological literature about the sense of touch and yeah. about how crucial it is um, in, in psychoanalysis. It's discussed as... As an existential um, sense, right? So uh, there were studies in the 40s uh, by René Spitz, for example, who worked with babies in hospitals and realized that the babies who were closer to the nurses' station fared better because the nurses would come by occasionally and you know touch them, and you know, and that touch. Made a difference in their survival rates, um, uh, even if they were severely sick, and um, so it's it's a it's something that's crucial to society.
1: Moving on to more political considerations, Fuchsner, who was raised in Germany, is sensitive to how COVID nineteen could affect the German political discourse around face and head coverings.
5: There was this whole huge discussion, as you know, about face covering in the context of religion, and. Um, the arguments that were brought forward um, had to do with identification, right? So you, how can you identify someone when half of their face is covered? Um, communication, can you communicate directly? So what does communication mean in a democratic society, right? What kind of values does facial communication transport? Um, so that was an important point. And then the the whole sense of that seeing your entire face, um, and that was particularly important also in the French, French and Belgian discussions, uh, that seeing your entire face somehow signals that a, a moment of integration into European society and uh, a participation, a civic participation. Um, so seeing your face, seeing the entire face, signals. A, a way of being a citizen, a European citizen. So now <laughs> we're all reevaluating this, right? Because there are there is now a condition where you know we won't be seeing each other's faces, uh, whether we're male or female, or you know, whatever religion or we follow or not. Uh, so is this gonna lead to a reevaluation of what the face means, what seeing the face means? Uh, is this going? To, you know how how is this discussion going to shift? Is this going to have consequences for for this discussion? And um, I mean, the notion of not covering your face was was all not only discussed in the sense of um, uh, in the discussions on religion, but also in the discussions on uh, political protest, right? So the Vermummungsverbot. Um, as a reaction to, uh, you know, political protests, where um, the anarchist scene would, you know, cover their faces in, in black face masks and so on, so that if you protest, you should be visible. Uh, you should be a visible citizen, but also a surveillable citizen, and so on. So that's another dimension that I think plays into that.
1: A trend that Argentinian-born Yale Professor of Comparative Literature, Moira Fradinger, has observed is the tendency by governments to compare their engagement with COVID-19 to a war, a metaphor that she says is especially fraught in the global South.
6: All the narratives that are returning in the North, for instance, are the narratives of war. Um, This is very striking to me, um, the return, uh, because I lived through 9-11, in the US, I was already in the US, so the narrative of we are combating a war on an undefined enemy, that was in place since I arrived to the US, and then the narrative of a war on drugs, right? This, this is not a war on people, these are wars on very uncertain types of enemy that you need to analyze from the representational point of view, from what we do you know, in the humanities, And now the war on a virus, which is, again, a very undefined, um, it's not even defined in terms of life or death. A virus is neither alive nor dead, as as far as I understand, right? So these narratives that are new to the 21st century, which are unconventional wars with unconventional enemies, have returned very strongly in the North. I have seen many um, narratives about... Um, getting together the troops, preparing our soldiers, uh, congratulating our new soldiers who are um, in the front lines of the pandemia, who this time around are the nurses or, or the doctors and so forth, right? Again, this narrative of war uh, is being played out very differently in the South. What is happening in the South is the display of military action and police action in the streets. This is not really a narrative that, that uh, has any popularity whatsoever in Latin America, for instance, which is a, a region that I study very much and I know very well. But what we have is a real life display of military tanks in the streets, a real life of display of military camps being transformed into hospitals by military personnel. So the military are acquiring a new role in these societies. And you have to think in two things. Um, These societies have been either through internal armed conflict through decades or have been through devastating dictatorships that have eliminated entire generations. So this is an incredibly um, um, risky, uh, if you wish, situation for the fragility of our politics uh, in this time and on the other hand you have to think on the following in 2019 october 2019 there were one million people in the streets protesting against piñera in chile now you see chilean streets patrolled by military police right um, what is the re-signification of this pandemia for people in Chile or for people in Argentina or in other Latin American countries who have gone, which have gone through military dictatorships that were very, very devastating in terms of economics, in terms of life lost.
1: Fradinger says she noticed how the concept of social distancing is a construct that has a particularly northern
6: bias. There is one significant difference that uh, has been very striking, which is cultural. Uh, Social distancing is very difficult in countries where the family as a unit uh, is your basic identity um, definer, right? So uh, in countries like the U.S. where I reside, that plays out much better in countries where there is not a strong sense of individualism and where there is a strong sense of relationality that defines your identity and where there is a strong sense that solidarity with your neighbor or solidarity with your uh, with your close, to fr- close friends or close family is absolutely paramount in every aspect of your life, uh, where you count on your friends being there, where you count on those relations as part of your identity. Social distancing is much more difficult to understand as a measure. So there have been very dramatic cases, um, including uh, one case involving um, people in my family who are elderly and who were found in uh, the middle of a public event where there were contaminated youth who just did not understand the level of risk that they pose to others, because they cannot do without the social communication and the social embrace of everyday life that defines their identity.
1: Wellesley College urban historian Nikhil Rao echoes this argument, pointing out that many of the protective measures against the coronavirus are very difficult to implement in places like his home country of India.
7: The idea of uh 1.5 meter distance stay at home is obviously laughable in uh a setting where in a settlement in in mumbai or in delhi where you know a family of eight or ten are sharing you know one room of 10 square meters and that's their home right, right? and there's nowhere else to go there's nowhere especially else to go the house, yeah. yeah especially if you can't leave the house right and um and uh those homes are obviously not they're not designed to function with everyone being home, right? They are designed to serve as places that people sleep. Um life is largely lived outdoors in the kind of common spaces, in the workspaces and so on, right? Um so that's just one really glaring sort of instance where you, you kind of realize how uh, something as simple as stay at home, you know, save lives. You see these sort of hashtags everywhere. It's not that simple. Rao also reminds us that a past epidemic, the bubonic plague
1: in 19th century India, had unexpected knock-on effects in terms of how the state wielded its power.
7: In the case of Bombay, which is the city that I have studied the most, um, there was at the turn of the 19th century a, a, a sort of infamous plague epidemic that uh made possible various kinds of state power that were quite unprecedented um so i think about that quite a bit as well as as you know i mean not quite a precedent but as a sort of another moment when um i mean among other things the birth of urban planning in in india is uh is usually tied to this um to this to this epidemic and uh, the kind of state power that that emerged out of that
1: artist kevin jerome eberson who teaches film at the university of virginia brings the discussion back to the united states where he says access to health care is the most impactful factor determining COVID 19 infection rates
8: god i've had healthcare care for since i've been teaching full-time for 25 years and I still think about this every time I cough, I feel like I figure my first thought is how much is this going to cost me not getting better. So in America, you know, if you're sick and stuff like that, I mean, you're not thinking about you're getting better. You're thinking about how much is going to cost you first and foremost. So then you're going to do things, put yourself in a position where, you do, where it's not going to cost you that much. And nine times out of ten, you're not going to go to the doctor. You know, you know, so to speak, so people have been sick. So I bet the numbers is probably almost twice as
1: much. Everson recalls a particular incident that illustrated just how much health outcomes in the United States are determined by class.
8: You know, I'm from Cleveland. I used to live in Cleveland. My daughter lives in Cleveland. And, you know, Cleveland Clinic is the second-best hospital, supposed to be the second-best hospital on planet Earth, outside the Mayo Clinic's up in uh, Minnesota. And I remember years ago when I lived there, and they're all on the East Side, right? It's all it's a all black community. So they bought a lot of land there and and stuff. And and then when I was there in 96, there was an outbreak of TB. Like, you know, blocks away from the clinic. And then they couldn't treat him. And years ago when I was there, there was a, a, one because they have their own police force. And one of their security guards got shot and they couldn't treat him. So he had to go to Westside hospital. So that tells you about what healthcare is in the United States right there alone. So you have your own employee there protecting you. And then as soon as
1: they get injured protecting you, then you can't help them. Turning to ideological shifts that might be brought about by the pandemic, Rice University cultural anthropologist Dominic Boyer considers the possible effects on neoliberalism.
3: Before this happened, I was among those who really felt as though neoliberalism was on its last legs in some ways, that it was gerontocratic. It was really a a logic that was being pushed by an older generation that was still invested in it. And as someone who began his career looking at the gerontocracy of state socialism, in other words, the, the figures in the 1980s who really believed that it was possible to maintain a kind of mid-20th century Stalinism uh, in perpetuity were being overwhelmed by the crush of, of youth who had no investment in that system, and I feel as though uh, until the pandemic this was also the path that neoliberalism was on too. That its gerontocracy was was proving increasingly unpersuasive and unintuitive to younger people who were actually finding much more allure in socialism and neo-socialism, and also obviously in neo-fascism, as we've we've seen, unfortunately, in many parts of the world too. So liberalism itself seemed to be, uh, you know, approaching a period in which it would need some kind of significant political renewal uh, through a new kind of youth movement and I don't know whether now whether that is still a fair expectation it could be that this kind of forced retreat out of the public this uh, idea that somehow social contact is contaminating I mean how how might that affect uh, the might that cause a kind of reinvestment in, in liberalism at some level I don't know I've studied the impact or the kind of uh, overlap and and, uh, ramifying impacts of liberalism and digital media technology in my research, and I've seen that there are ways in which the interfaces of screens and the increasing shift towards screen work has actually helped to uh, strengthen liberal political dispositions and ideas and behaviors. So this may be
1: another case along those lines. Boyer has spent much of his career studying another big global threat, climate change. He says that our response to the coronavirus could hold lessons for this other existential struggle we're facing.
3: The trajectory we're on right now in terms of uh, a great reduction of economic activity, of mobility, of use of energy resources, of use of natural resources, is actually the path we need to be on. This is what we're experiencing now is more or less what we would need to do to seriously avert um, the uh, predicted consequences of uh, of um, the modern high energy intensive lifestyle that we lead so so that's really striking is that what we're experiencing now is privation is actually the path that's being recommended for us by people who take climate issues seriously so that i think is something we should be mindful of and i think one of the lessons i'd like to see us learn is how we might get to a point where we can understand this situation as being something that's generative of a new and more positive future and not simply as the deprivation of a past that we want to cling to. Because the world that's coming, and I think we have each our role to play in making sure that it is the best future possible, uh, that world cannot be a return to the pre-pandemic normal. We have to find a way to create a widespread reduction of the intensity of our modern life and resource use that can still be one in which people can be cared for and that no one has to be um, abandoned and in which um, rights and goods can be ethically distributed among a population and in which we ask less of the earth than we have been as a
1: civilization going forward. Simony Howe, also a cultural anthropologist at Rice, similarly hopes that our civilizations learn humility from this crisis.
9: So one of the areas that I've worked in for a very long time is an area called queer theory which looks at kind of counter normative forms of thinking through social systems and culture. And one of the very famous, more recent tenets of queer theory is this queer art of failure. And in that queer art of failure, there is learning to be done within failure, but failure is not necessarily failure to subscribe to the norm. It's an embrace of failure. So perhaps if the United States embraces its failure to have treated the virus as rigorously as it might have, recognizing the successes that were had in certain cities and certain states, we can really learn from that. Um, rather than to see failure as um, an utterly devastating kind of diagnosis about you know what was done wrong, it can be seen as something that can be done better in the future and the next time, because my sense is that we will likely have another pandemic perhaps of this scale within our lifetimes. I expect it to happen. It'll be perhaps a different kind of coronavirus, a different kind of outbreak. It may be worse, it may be maybe not as bad, but it will happen again.
1: On a more hopeful note, Howe says that despite all the devastation we're likely to continue to experience, the world's response to COVID-19 has been encouraging because at least on some level, it shows that we value the lives of the vulnerable.
9: In the pandemic, I think we have seen globally, some more successful than others, that the emphasis has been upon saving lives. And it really could have been different. It really could have been the case that the United States, for example, never decided to do social distancing, never decided to ask for stay-at-home orders in order to preserve the economy and economic growth and jobs. It could have been the case that the priority was given to the economy rather than to human lives. They could have The attitude could have been like, these people are expendable, these people with diabetes, these people who are aged, these people who have underlying conditions. Sorry, we're just going to let you expire because we can't We can't afford, literally, to allow this economy to to go into recession. And in fact, that was not the choice that was made. So it has been surprising to me to see humanity actually respond on the side of life rather than economic gain. And there has been an orientation towards preserving lives and saving lives, which again is the exact opposite of a war footing, but is one which I think also gives us hope that Priority was given to human life, um, even in particularly vulnerable human lives, instead of prioritizing the global economy, as is so often the case.
0: And that concludes this episode of Beyond the Lecture. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. Our show was produced today by Tony Andrews with production assistance by Denise Gammon. Special thanks to Dominic Boyer for making these recordings when we were unable to. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.